Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode, from the Dublin Festival of History 2023, acclaimed historian, journalist and author Katja Hoya discusses her book, Beyond the Wall, East Germany 1949-1990. In Beyond the Wall, Hoya offers a kaleidoscopic new vision of this vanished country. Beginning with the bitter experience of German Marxists exiled by Hitler, she traces the arc of the state they would go on to create, first under the watchful eye of Stalin, and then in an increasingly distinctive German fashion. This episode was recorded at the Dublin Unitarian Church on the 10th of June, 2023. And I'm really thrilled to welcome Katja Hoyer back to the festival. She spoke to us online in 2021 and last year at the Big Weekend in conversation with Professor Robert Gavarth of UCD. Katja is a German British historian, journalist, and the author of the widely acclaimed Blood and Iron. She's a visiting research fellow at King's College London and a fellow of the Royal Historical Society. She's also a columnist for the Washington Post and hosts the podcast, The New Germany, together with Oliver Moody. She was born in East Germany and is now based outside London. Now this evening, she's going to be telling us about her latest book, which is called Beyond the Wall, East Germany, 1949 to 1990, which has been described as utterly brilliant by the historian Julia Boyd, who also goes on to write that this gripping account of Eastern Germany sheds new light on what for many of us remains an opaque chapter of history, authoritative, lively, and profoundly human. It is essential reading for anyone seeking to understand post-World War II Europe. In the Sunday Times, Dominic Sandbrook wrote, forget everything you thought you knew about life in the GDR. This terrifically colorful, surprising, and enjoyable history of the, to- of the socialist state is full of surprises. So could you please welcome Katja Hoyer. I was a little bit uh, conscious tonight about it being a Saturday. There's also the Champions League final going on. And when I arrived this morning, I hear that Harry Styles is in the country um, and everybody is going there. So thank you very much for uh, making me a priority over all of those things. I will try and uh, do this uh, justice. Um, Maybe a little bit of of background um, about kind of why I wrote the book first. I get asked that question a lot, strangely much more often than I I did about my my first book, Blood and Iron, which was on the the, um, German Empire, so just before the, the First World War. Um, the main reason is that I wanted to write it from a historian's point of view. So this is very much me as somebody obsessed with German history and with, with the kind of German narrative that just won't quite fit together. It's kind of lots of bits and parts of, of German history and they, and they just don't go together. Um, trying to make sense of where East Germany actually fits into this um, puzzle because I've, I've found over the years that East Germany tends to be a kind of footnote or a little sort of side episode of, of kind of the real Germany, which is West Germany. So that kind of set itself up, West Germany, as the successor, legally and otherwise politically, of, of states that have come before. Um, and so in, in 1949, basically, a, a proper Germany was set up, and then this kind of strange other Germany that, that happened to, to also be there as a, as a sort of side product. Um, and that narrative started straight at the time. So people um, in, in the West in particular called East Germany a, a, a part state or the zone, the occupation zone. Um, it was even then not really acknowledged kind of as a country. Um, and then the fact that it kind of just abruptly ended in 1990 um, when Germany was reunified kind of confirmed this idea that that, that was always the anomaly to the, to the true, to the real Germany. And to this day, when people talk about Germany, say, in the 1970s, they tend to mean West Germany. When they mean East Germany, they will explicitly say that. Um, and so to me, this is a little bit odd because you've got basically 41 years of German history there, 41 years the state existed. That's longer than the First World War, uh, the Weimar Republic, and the Nazis together. 
and yet there's been a lot more written and said and, and discussed about any of these kind of three parts of German history than, than there has been about, about the GDR, about East Germany. Um, and so this is um, basically an attempt for me as a historian to try and, and give it kind of the, the place that I think it, it deserves and it should have in German history, namely a, a proper chapter of this kind of complicated hodgepodge of different things that, that Germany has tried to do since 1871. Um, there is also a personal angle to that. I was, I was born in East Germany and this is kind of the reason I think why people ask me this question because it is the obvious question if you're kind of old enough technically. I know I look a little bit younger but people always I still get ID'd sometimes. Um, but I am actually old enough to have been born in the GDR just about in 1985. Um, so I was, I was five years old when the country reunified. And so the second question is always sort of east or west. And, and then I have to sort of admit almost um, that I was born in the east. And so my attempt was to, to put that story into the book as one of the stories that I've got in there to make it very obvious right from the beginning where kind of my own background is and, and where I come from and where my perspective is. Um, also, or what my perspective is also shaped by to some extent. Um, so my, I mean, the fact that I was four years old when the Berlin Wall fell obviously means that I haven't got a lot of memories, and this is certainly not a memoir. Um, it's, as I said to be, at the beginning, it's, it's me as a historian writing this. Um, but I want to maybe quickly start with my one abiding memory that I do have um, when I was four years old. Um, and I'll just read that to you quickly because I couldn't tell it any better than, <laughs> than, than I wrote it at the time. The last day of the Republic, East Berlin, 7th of October, 1989. I was four years old, an excited little girl with unruly pitch black hair that resisted every attempt to control it. Wrapping my little hands around the handrail of the rotating visitor platform of the Berlin television tower, I was straining forward to get as close to the panoramic glass panes as I could. As my feet lifted off the carpet, I went unusually quiet. I gazed down 203 meters at the streets below in amazement, trying to take it all in. The little cars whizzing around Berlin looked marvelous. Just like, my precious uh, just like my precious collection of matchbox toys. There were lots of tiny people too, and yet more were coming. Delighted with the spectacle of Berlin from above, I turned around and shouted slightly too loudly, Papa, come and see. All those little people look like ants. I pointed downwards, eagerly jumping up and down so that I could see better. And look, there are police cars everywhere. At last, my words seemed to arrest my father's attention. He had been buying drinks for me and my pregnant mother from the fancy restaurant in the center of the observation platform, but those last words made him stop in his tracks. Looking down at the increasingly crowded square at the foot of the Fernsehturm, his face went white. He recognized the armored vehicles um, as belonging to the paramilitary people's police units. Many of the people I was pointing at were protesters. The government clearly expected trouble and was readying itself to respond. Katja, come quick, we need to go, he urged but I stood rooted to the spot, transfixed by the miniature chaos that was unfolding below. My knuckles turned white with my determination to cling on onto the handrail if need be. Just as things became really exciting, my father wanted to go. Without listening to my protestations or my mother's questions, he pulled us along um, back into the lift. On the long journey down, troubling thoughts went through my father's mind. What if the protests escalate? How will the police react? Both questions worried him, but it was, the, it was best to sit it out at, at home outside the capital. If things were to take a violent turn, at least his young family would be safe. We rushed back down to, to our second-hand second white trabant, which my parents had secured for the extortionate price of 8,000 marks a couple of years earlier to avoid the long waiting times for a new model. The drive home was filled with animated conversation, which I listened to intently from the back seat, my eyebrows furrowed in deep concentration. 
None of it made any sense, but it all seemed very thrilling. I adored my father in part because I didn't see him as much as I wanted to. He served as an officer in the Air Force and was often on duty. But when he came home, he would take me on day trips to Leipzig Zoo to feed the elephants or to the vast landscape gardens of Sanssouci Palace in Potsdam, where he could bore me with his lectures on Prussian and German history that never seemed to make any sense. That day, the 7th of October 1989, was the 40th anniversary of the GDR, a public holiday. There would be a military parade in Berlin with foreign dignitaries, including Mikhail Gorbachev himself. Like many other families, my family too was keen to enjoy the unseasonably warm uh, day and relax. Like many other families, we did not know that our lives were about to change forever. And that memory was, it's kind of like a, you know, like the childhood memories are like a sort of still image in my mind. Um, it comes with this strange kind of feeling of anxiety, excitement, something momentous is about to happen. And that it was something that as a kid I sort of absorbed even at the time because you, you just sort of sensed adults being uncertain all of a sudden, which is just not a thing that you're used to when you're, when you're that small. So suddenly everything seemed to change. Nobody seemed to know what was happening and the, and the GDR sort of disappeared. Um, and people tried to make sense of that, um, you know, as it was unfolding, because things happened very quickly. Um, so that is also a memory, and, and kind of the aftermath of that, that did shape my perspective on, on what I wanted to do with this book, because it was important to me to also tell the story out of the perspectives or through the eyes of, of people who lived in the GDR, rather than kind of looking down uh, from, a, from my now Western perspective. I tried to talk to as many people as, as I could who actually lived in East Germany to try and capture their perspectives and also um, you know, get sort of diary entries, um, documents from the archives and things to try and really um, get a sense of what it was actually like to, to live there at the time, but make it understandable for people who have not lived there, like myself included basically as a, as a historian I also now look on um, from the outside or from behind, if you will. Um, so let's go right to the start. Um, I mean, the book is as uh, thick as it is because I start uh, quite a long, a long time before the setup of the GDR actually happened in, in 1949. I thought it was really important to understand where the people that were around at that time and the uh, people who set up the GDR, where they actually came from and what their, what their backgrounds were. Because normal kind of traditional histories of the time start basically when the GDR is set up on the 7th of October 1949 and then go from there. Uh, but when you think about the immensely violent and tumultuous kind of German years that came before, you know, these people have gone through uh, the war, through Nazism, through the Weimar Republic, the Great Depression, the First World War. They've never experienced any form of kind of stability unless they were old enough to kind of have conscious memories of the times before 1914. And even then you could argue that that wasn't, um, you know, a, a time that was kind of normal in a democratic sense either. Um, so that's important for me to, to capture. And so I start with um, a, a story of a German communist, communist called Erwin Jures, who was born in 1912 um, and was therefore quite young still in the, in the 1930s when the Nazis came into power and decided, like many other German communists, that the best thing to do is to actually flee to the Soviet Union, flee away from the Nazis, try and get away from, from the very mortal danger, really, that, that these people were in. Um, in his case, he'd actually been arrested before. He'd, he'd been put in, into one of the really early concentration camps that were set up for, the, for political enemies of the Nazis in 1933, and he decided that it wasn't safe once he was released um, and went to the Soviet Union. And that's not just a, a kind of rational decision for these people. When you, when you think about the way that many kind of elements, particularly of the really impoverished working classes, and Erwin Joris was part of that, he lived in a working class district of, of Berlin, 
where life had been pretty miserable. They lived in tenement housings. Um, after the First World War, there was a lot of kind of street violence going on. And he grew up basically, as I say, he was born in, in 1912, so he was sort of 10 in 1922, and then grew up throughout the 1920s experiencing nothing but, but basically pov poverty and violence. Um, and then this idea that the Soviet Union had kind of set up a real implementation of this sort of ideology that he believed in as a, as a kind of enthusiastic teenager um, appealed to many people like him. And, and it wasn't just kind of getting away from the Nazis, but also this was kind of like the promised land to them because they'd never seen it themselves. They didn't know what it was actually like. And this was the first kind of um, real existing, as the, as the German phrase has it, real existing uh, form of socialism on, on Earth. Uh, and so, you know, there were lots of German communists that traveled there in the 1920s, and they all came back and told these lovely stories about, um, you know, equality for women, and, and finally the workers have got the power in their hands and all the rest of it. They didn't say about the poverty, about the crumbling buildings, and about the dictatorship. Um, and so people like Erwin Uras turned up there and, and immediately tried to kind of make themselves useful to the, to the state once they were in, in Moscow, um, to Stalin. Um, because a lot of stuff needed to be done there still as well with Stalin's um, sort of industrialization program. And so many of these people were genuinely keen to get going, roll their sleeves up and say, fine, we, we leave Germany behind. This has clearly gone completely wrong um, and we go to the Soviet Union. And that sense of disillusionment and, and danger that then happened when the, when the Stalinist purges unfold and Stalin kind of panics and, and gets kind of a, a sort of proper wave of, of paranoia. Um, in the mid-1930s, 1936, 37, um, and that's specifically targeted at the, at the Germans that lived in the Soviet Union because um, Stalin now expects there to be some sort of fifth column, basically, for Hitler to, to, to be the case. So basically, people have to prove um, that, that they're not just um, yeah, a, a sort of fascist that is pretending to be a communist, and Stalin doesn't quite believe that. And so the, the so-called German order is issued, um, which basically means that every single German that lives in the Soviet Union must be arrested and must be um, sort of tested for their, for their ideological um, soundness. And that included the, the communists. Um, so even, ironically, the German communists who'd come voluntarily to the Soviet Union to help. That includes, by the way, also many Bauhaus um, architects, for example. It's not just workers. So there are many intellectuals, architects, um, artists who had been very sort of left-leaning and had also for a long time been um, struggling in Germany to sort of set foot and then once the Nazis of course come in um, there isn't a future for them so they go also to the Soviet Union um, and they now find themselves at the sharp end of, of Stalinist uh, repression. Um, so just to give you an idea of the scale of it, the, the more of the German communists that, that were around basically during um, the communist leadership that is during the 1920s, Stalin killed more of them than Hitler did. And that's quite, quite remarkable when you think about that. And, and of the nine leaders of, of the German Communist Party that go to the, to, Soviet, to the Soviet Union, only two of them are still alive at the end of the war. Um, so this, if you're German and you're in the Soviet Union at the time, you, you stand a very, very slim, small chance of actually surviving the, the war. And those people that do, um, there are a few kind of honest dreamers, if you will, kind of idealists like, like Erwin Ewers, um, who I mentioned at the beginning. Um, he just about survives this um, by sheer luck, really. The, the uh, regime thinks, okay, we don't need to deal with this uh, fascist our, ourselves. We just send him back to Nazi Germany because then the Gestapo will, will get rid of him. They did that sometimes and basically sent these people back um, and then the Gestapo basically picked them up. And they did that with Erwin Euros as well, put him back in prison in Germany. Um, and then he was, um, because they were so desperate for soldiers, he was basically deployed again at the front lines. Um, somehow survived that as well. He fought in the east. 
um, and then ended up in prison again after the war. But he survived by sheer luck. Um, he don't normally survive kind of a, a series of you know, prison spells, basically, in the Soviet Union and in, in Nazi Germany, and then after the war again. Um, most people survived because they proved once and for all to Stalin that um, they were absolutely loyal. The two that are left at the end of the Politburo um, are Walter Ulbricht um, and Wilhelm Pieck. And those two have done lots of very um, unsavory things to survive, basically. They, have, they had to prove to Stalin um, that they were so communist that they would even sacrifice um, you know, their friends, their colleagues, and they would say so-and-so is actually really a, a fascist spy, um, and, and they just pretend to be a communist, even though they'd worked with them often for years. Um, and that's how those two survived. And that's basically the two that go back to Germany at the end of the, the Second World War that are sent back by Stalin um, to set up um, political structures in, in Germany, in, in his zone, in his occupation zone in the East. Um, Walter Ulbricht then later becomes the um, general secretary of the leading party um, in East Germany and runs the country for 20 years. Um, and uh, Wilhelm Pieck becomes the first and only uh, president of the GDR. So that, you know, I, I felt, just like I've done it in, in this lecture now, I felt in the book as well that just needed to be um, spelled out and explained because I think that explains a lot about these people's background and where their psychology comes from, um, par partially also where their paranoia comes from. I mean, if you imagine you live sort of within the Soviet Union in that kind of really uh, heated frenzy of the Stalinist purges, and you're constantly looking over your shoulder, where's the next enemy? It could be your friend, it could be your neighbor, it could be your party colleague who writes a letter to Stalin's men you know, tomorrow to say that you're really a fascist and, and that gets you into prison. There's no trial, there's no chance to get back out or, or you might get shot on the, on the spot as often happened. Um, as well. So um, with that mindset, these people come back into East Germany and then set up the, the state. Um, and the third example um, is also quite extreme. That's Erich Mielke, um, who's the leader of the uh, Stasi later for years, up, right, up, uh, right up until the end. And he was trained as a uh, sort of terrorist by the, by the Soviet Union. He was in Moscow and he learned things like sabotage and spying and, and um, sort of yeah, terrorist things, skills um, there. And then he was deployed in the Spanish Civil War um, where he fought. And it's a similar example where he constantly had to look um, after himself, if you will, do his own thing. He was a nasty piece of work to start with. He'd killed two policemen um, in the, during the Weimar Republic and then had to sort of try and flee uh, and get away from, the, from justice, basically. That's incidentally also what he was actually convicted for in the end, not his doings in the Stasi, but the two police murders. Um, because that's the only thing that they could really uh, get any kind of evidence down um, to, to sort of really, you know, make a case against him. Um, but those kinds of people run the state. In, in Mirka's case, right up until the end, and I always find that remarkable when you speak to sort of younger uh, or now middle-aged people who were basically young in the 1980s, and they, they describe this kind of fairly modern world that they lived in, and you think that the, this world is still run by people like Erich Mirko, who, you know, with that background that I was just describing, who are basically dinosaurs at that point and don't really fit into the world anymore that they run. And I think that was part of the uh, issue with the, with the GDR overall, is that it, it never kind of rejuvenated its, its ideology or its kind of the way that the state was run, and younger people were pushing further and further, trying to get things changing. Um, and there were basically these, these old men sort of sat at the top saying, no, this is how we were trained by, by Stalin. In some cases, these people had still met Lenin, you know, and drew some sort of direct uh, connection from there and said, no, we can't change it because any change away from the, from the ideology leads us right down the road to, to, to fascism and imperialism. And, and that, I, that's why I, I wanted to set this up first. Um, 
when the um, uh, Gruppe Albrecht, as they were called, so Albrecht comes back from Moscow um, in 1945, the, the war hasn't quite finished yet, it's in the last days of the war, they actually enter Germany the very day that Hitler uh, kills himself in the bunker. Um, he comes back to Germany with nine other men, they're, they're in a plane, um, basically sent by Stalin, they're all German communists, um, in order to set up um, kind of new structures, and that's a deliberate move, what the Russians don't really want to do, um, given the way that, that the war has gone and, and how angry the, the German population, particularly in the East, is because of the violence that they've experienced, is to make it look as though it's completely run just by the, by the Soviets, basically. They try and get Germans in there as quickly as possible, and so they rely on the, on the few Germans that survived, um, basically, Stalin's paranoia and send them back. Um, so they arrive and they find a Berlin that they don't recognize anymore because they've been away often since, since the early 1930s. Um, some people, one, one of them, um, Wolfgang Leonard, uh, later became a, a famous uh, kind of communist expert because he, he fled to the West later on. But at this point, he's a young communist. Um, he was still a child when he left. He was only 12 years old. Uh, last time he saw Berlin. And now he comes back in 1945 and finds a completely destroyed, people all look like sort of zombies coming out of, uh, out of basements looking for water and things, and um, it's mostly women and children, and they're all in, really, in a really bad state, of course, given the, um, the, the dep deprivation that they've lived in at that point. Um, and they're supposed to set up structures for these people without revealing their kind of Russian connection, as it were. So Wolfgang Leonard is a classic example. His mother was so uh, communist that she'd actually called her son Vladimir after Lenin. Um, and so now he came back being, you know, and his name was Vladimir Leonard, and the, yes, that was his name, but Ulbricht said to him, you know, it would be immediately suspicious to, to the Germans, so why don't you call yourself something German? And so he, he went under the name of Wolfgang Leonard and stayed, stayed that way basically till the end. Um, but they were really trying to keep that quiet, that they just came back from, from Russia, um, not least because, you know, you have a very heavily Nazified population there. They'd lived under, under Nazism for, for, you know, since 1933 um, and had experienced this entire system and they hadn't. So they had no idea really what was going on in people's minds, especially younger people who'd gone through the Hitler Youth and that was the only thing that they'd ever known. Um, and so they had to be very cautious how to phrase things. And initially they're very um, keen to make it look democratic. Albrecht actually summons his entire group and says to them, it needs to look democratic, but we need to have everything in our hands. And so he sets up a, a system which is known as a substitute system, whereby he basically puts um, sort of Democrats and social Democrats into leadership positions. So they become um, mayors or councillors or uh, local politicians. And then their substitutes are the, are the communists, are the kind of real ideologues that Albrecht knows he can rely on. And they really have everything in their hands. The moment the person at the top does something even vaguely suspicious to Albrecht, basically they're gone at this point. And it is really brutal still. This is really still a, a Second World War kind of hangover, this kind of violence, same after the First World War. Um, in that, for instance, you know, people will literally get a knock on their door in the middle of the night um, and, and they'll be either NKVD, so Russian secret police, um, or one of Albrecht's men, men sort of stood there, um, arrest people, and they get put partially even into the concentration camps that the Nazis had had built. Um, they, they get sort of special camp status um, and then people end up sitting in the very concentration camps basically that, that had been there in, in Germany to deal with political opponents again after the, after the war. Um, so this early period um, is uh, something that I spoke to, to a few people about who, were, who are now basically in their, in their 90s and they just said this kind of sense of 
partially they just wanted to get on with things and nobody really paid attention to politics and, and as such kind of a lot of the things that I describe in the book wouldn't have even been known to ordinary people but they all describe a kind of pervasive sense of of fear and of, of kind of they didn't really know what was going to happen next and so when the GDR is finally set up in, in 1949 um, it seems finally this kind of post-war period is over now the real thing can start and, and two new Germanys are there and in each Germany people feel that they just want to roll their sleeves up and get going and, and build a country that is better than, than what came before because of the war basically now actually coming to Germany itself this time. People really want to get away from that and want to say, you know, we're, we're building something better here than, than what came before. And you find that in the East as well, and this is somewhat lacking from previous um, discussions of the GDRs, that there's a genuine sense of uh, kind of optimism um, in 1949, 1950, that's later crushed in 1953, but to start with, uh, people are genuinely quite uh, keen. Maybe I'll, I'll just read a, a very brief example of this because I've, I found a story of one of the people that I spoke to uh, really quite powerful who was, who was around at the time. Ketschendorf, Brandenburg, 1951. Regina Faustmann was fairly happy with how things had turned out. The 16-year-old girl had gone through a lot in her young life. Her father had died in 1945, leaving his wife to look after their three children, just as the Red Army was advancing. Her mother spoke a little Russian, so she was recruited to do the laundry for the victorious soldiers in exchange for food. As the Soviets knew she had three children to feed, they were always generous to the young family, never to, for the young family never to go hungry, nor were they harmed in any way. When she was old enough, Regina began an apprenticeship as a, a chemical lab technician at the local Deka Works, a tire factory, um, that had opened in her hometown in 1940 and immediately resumed work after the war. It was not what she had dreamt of doing with her life. She had wanted to become a seamstress like many in her family before, but things did not work out that way. Besides, uh, she had stable work with which she was um, able to help support the family, and then there was also a handsome young tire maker called Günther who had entered her life. With him, she began to frequent the new theaters, dance clubs and cinemas that, that sprung up everywhere. The Soviets and their German comrades had agreed, uh, had agreed that a rich cultural scene had to be built up immediately for morale, but also because the Soviets simply loved entertainment in all its forms. Regina and Günther uh, had both joined the newly established FDOT, that's the uh, Free German Youth, the youth movement that they set up. As a Catholic, Regina felt included in the wide range of activities on offer, which she undertook alongside her Protestant and non-religious peers. There were social activities and music, but often also serious work to help rebuild Germany, such as uh, scrap metal collection. It felt good to be part of a collective, e collective effort. The only thing that annoyed her sometimes was that the Soviets had a habit of just turning up at the tire factory unannounced and confiscating the goods that had just been manufactured, which messed up production schedules, targets, and the coordination of the manufacturing process. Um, and there were plenty of people up and down the country, and Regina is really not what you would consider a, a sort of classic, you know, socialist, as I've just said in the text as well. She was a Catholic, uh, grew up in a Catholic family. Um, her father, um, you know, had, is not, was not around anymore. Um, so she was certainly not somebody who ideologically bought into this to start with. She was just somebody, as many people were at the time, who said that, you know, this is now a new, new chance, let's just draw a line and start again, and that's very much the spirit. The problem was, of course, that right from the beginning, East Germany, same as West Germany, wasn't really in a position to do its own thing. It was part of a, of a beginning, or of the beginning of the Cold War structures that was, were being set up. And the Soviets, Soviets were very much relying on, on East Germany as a resource bank to start with. So I just hinted at that in the text as well. 
Um, 60% of ongoing um, production was actually taken by the Soviets. So when you think there are like the 16-year-old you know, girls like, like Regina out there kind of literally rolling their sleeves up and get going, and then suddenly the Soviets just roll up and go, right, fine, we need all of, all of what you've just produced. Uh, that was hugely frustrating to people, especially as that then meant that there was very little actually to buy in the shops and people were working harder and harder. Um, the government responded to that by really focusing on heavy industry because they felt they needed to get the economy back going and the industry back going. So it, it really, people were really um, struggling to get consumer goods and, and even kind of basic food items and things like that. Rationing was in place much longer. So people were asked to work more and more and more and ended up getting very little out of it. And so frustration basically built throughout the early 1950s, 51, 52. Um, and the regime did nothing at all about that, basically. Workers were, were saying, well, this is supposed to be a worker state, so can we talk about the conditions that we've got here? Um, and Albrecht and the others um, kind of just ignored that and said, no, we, we, we just need to get through this phase, it'll get better soon. Um, and those kind of platitudes were eventually not, not enough anymore, and you ended up with the anger building up uh, into this um, uprising in 1953, which is also strangely overlooked in, in history. Um, people focus more on the, on the Prague Spring, for example, on, on Hungary, um, but that was the first of the, of the sort of Eastern European, if you will, uprisings in 1953, with one million East Germans on the streets uh, protesting against their government and, and saying, first of all, they, they want basically to work less, want to actually get food and, and kind of everyday items, but the message has also very quickly turned political and people are demanding this early reunification and, and kind of rights for for themselves, um, voting rights and so on. Um, and the government doesn't know what to do with that because they haven't built up a military yet. Um, the police is a, is a shambles still at that point because it's, it's very early days. And so eventually the Soviets step in and declare a state of emergency and you have basically Soviet tanks rolling into Germany again. Um, and this uprising was very bloodily crushed. And not only that, but people were actually executed afterwards for, um, for sort of treason, if you will. Um, so this, this is a, a huge um, moment for, the, for this young state. You know, we're only four years in at this point, um, and it really um, makes it obvious to the regime that it can't just do whatever it wants. People will find a way of voicing their opinion, even if there isn't a, a public sphere or a kind of a free press or anything like that. Basically, people will make their views heard, and they can't rely on the Soviets, and the Soviets tell them that as well. Uh, they can't rely on the Soviets to come in every time that there, there, there's kind of uh, public anger, if you, if you will. And so from that point onwards, the, the regime, the, the SED, the leading political party, is very um, aware of the fact that um, it needs to cater to what people want, um, at least to an extent where it pacifies them and where people are reasonably happy. Um, and so for the first time, you get uh, kind of shelves being filled. The Soviets help with that. They send sort of truckloads of stuff from the Soviet Union. Uh, the reparations costs are reduced. Um, East Germany, by the way, paid 99% of all war reparations for Germany um, because the, the West basically didn't take any um, and decided to rebuild rather than, than take. And you get Marshall aid being, being injected into the West uh, whilst East Germany did pay the reparations, uh, at least to start with. Um, and that was reduced, and so life actually gets better. And I found it really quite surprising when I talked to older people how they said that the late 1950s were actually kind of a, a time of stability for them. And that only makes sense, again, when you see that sort of background where they've come from. If you're, if you're an adult at that point, you would have gone through nothing but chaos and misery. And at that point, for the first time, uh, flats were being built, um, childcare was being established, uh, wages went up. Um, it, it seemed like a time of stability. Um, 
The problem was, of course, that the West at this point, West, West Germany, had what was called an economic miracle. So they were going through a massive boom at the time, um, living standards rising immensely. And so, you know, as, a, as an East German, you can just look over there and there's another Germany on the other side that you can go to. This is also a dimension I often find is underestimated when we talk about East Germany as compared to the other Eastern European states. If, if you're Polish or you're Czech, there isn't another Poland or another Czechoslovakia that you can just go to and, and you be a citizen and, and you're still in the same country effectively. And that, that does exist in Germany. And so many people now look at this um, kind of economic miracle in the West. Why have they stopped rationing? Why, why are people kind of in a better place there? Um, why have they got freedoms there that we haven't got? And many people leave. At this point, you still can. The inner German border, because Stalin panics once again in 1952 when, the, when West Germany starts building up its military again. Um, so he tells Albrecht to, to beef up the inner German border, that long border between East and West Germany. Um, and that's fairly sealed at that point. But you can still go through Berlin. That's still an open, occupied city. So it, that means if you live in Dresden and you want to go to West Germany, we just go to East Berlin, literally walk over into the western sectors of Berlin, and then take a train out to, to the west. And that's perfectly legal. Um, simple thing to do, and West Germany immediately accepts you as a citizen as well, so there, there weren't any kind of barriers as such. Um, and so over 2 million people out of a population of 18 million uh, do that by 1961, and that's a huge brain drain. It's mainly middle-class people, intellectuals, uh, skilled workers, um, anybody who knows that they're going to have a much higher salary and a much better living standard in in the West, but it's also the people that are needed for, for rebuilding. And so by 1961, uh, Albrecht had wanted to seal that um, kind of border in, in Berlin for a long time. He's finally in a position, from his perspective, uh, to go to the Soviets and advocate that position. Because the Soviets were hugely worried. I mean, you know, they agreed with the West uh, that they would have Berlin as, a, as an occupied city. It wouldn't belong to anybody. They, they, that, that was still administered by the four occupying powers together. Um, so for the Soviets, that's a huge risk when you think this is the same sort of time as the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, and other kind of Cold War confrontations, it's, it's very, very tense. Any change to Berlin might well mean a, a third world war, and in this case, with nuclear weapons. So they weren't overly keen on the idea of disrupting the status quo there until Ulbricht basically said, my country is crumbling, something will happen here in any case. Um, I need to do something. And eventually, the Soviets give in, um, and that war gets built in um, August uh, 1961. And from that onwards, um, Two things happen. First of all, of course, a huge catastrophe to the people who had previously moving, been able to move back and forth. So particularly if you lived in East Berlin and you were working in West Berlin, as many people were, and you were just commuting back and forth on a daily basis, you are now cut off from your job or from family that you might have had in, in West Berlin because they didn't tell anybody that this was happening. It was virtually overnight. Um, so people suddenly found themselves in a position having to decide, basically, which, where do I want to live? Initially, it was still possible to virtually kind of step over the barbed wire. It was just kind of loosely um, run through the, the city, and many people did that. Um, but it put people into an awful position making those decisions, and eventually they were cut off from the lives that, that they could have chosen or wanted to choose at that point. But it also had the effect that, once again, the regime then was in a position where it sat there and went, well, we've locked everybody in now. We need to sort of make this work for them. Um, and so suddenly you get a huge amount of investment in um, consumer goods, um, into uh, sort of city development. So places like Alexanderplatz in Berlin with the TV tower uh, get kind of deliberately designed to look very kind of ultra-modern and, and uh, uh, sort of, you know, progress-like, so to give the, the idea, basically, of progress. 
and there's lots of money being pumped into education. Um, women are, are sort of very quickly joining the workforce, much, much quicker than in, in other countries. Uh, by the end of the GDR, over 90% of women are in, in work, which is the highest rate ever achieved in, in sort of human uh, history. So that is something that has also been seen in, a, in different ways across time. I mean, a lot of people have said that that was just a work creation measure for the, um, sort of for the, for the GDR, but also um, many people that you speak to genuinely appreciated the, the opportunities that were given to them. So all of that's also happening at the same time as the misery, and I think that's part of what I'm trying to do in the book. Um, and also part of what's been seen as very uh, controversial in Germany, for example, is that I tell both of these stories. So you'll have kind of people being, you know, people trying to, to cross the, the wall in, a, in desperate, increasingly desperate attempts. Um, but at the same time, you have people saying, well, finally, we have a doctor in our town because they'd all gone and, and now the hospital is functioning again. And those things both exist. And to me, being sort of young enough to not have been part of that, basically. It's a historical phenomenon that I describe fairly dispassionately. But there are like huge emotions still in Germany about these things on both sides um, that the, the book has sort of tapped into a little bit. Um, and that carries on into the 70s. It's really interesting um, when you look at the, the change between um, Honecker and, uh, sorry, between Ulbricht. So when Ulbricht goes in, in 1971 and Honecker comes in, um, you get a, a, an immediate sense that something has going to change. He's a younger man. He was also born in, in 1912, by the way, like Erin Ewers. Um, younger man, new, new generation, and people initially think, here's, a, here's something new happening. We can maybe now change to a more democratic form of, of socialism. And initially, Honecker is very keen to cater to that. I describe various means by which he is trying to do that in the book. So, for example, he, he says... Uh, the, the sort of previous snobbery about genes, um, which were kind of seen as a, as a rebellious thing to do, uh, needs to stop. And the regime actually produced genes in Germany, even though they were kind of the ultimate um, symbol of the West. Um, and Honecker actually went as far as to import over one million Levi's genes, original Levi's genes from the US to try and pacify the population in one go. It caused complete chaos, basically. People were trying to to get them, to stockpile them, um, and they, they had to be imported at various times at huge costs to the, to the regime, um, you know, because they had to be paid for with actual Western money as opposed to, to sort of traded in. Um, so all of that's happening in the 70s. You get this huge youth uh, festival, sometimes called the Red Woodstock uh, in 1973, where you have 8 million people flocking to Berlin from all sorts of Western countries as well. Um, which is, is sort of very open deliberately. So Honecker even, um, you know, says from, from the outset, even to the people who are worried, like Stasi um, boss Eric Mielke, we just need to let this go, just let them have this festival. Um, and, and if there are any kind of problems, we can still sort of deal with this. A few people were actually locked up beforehand as well, who they sort of knew would, would use the festival as a, as a kind of political means to express their dissent. Um, but overall, it was felt that that was a moment where something could have gone differently. And when it doesn't, I think people become more and more unhappy towards the end of the 70s and into the 80s, uh, where you get growing uh, dissent, particularly amongst younger people, who feel that now is the time for change. You know, Germany is set up now. It's actually got embassies in over 200 countries as part of the, uh, of the UN, East Germany at that point, uh, admitted at the same time as West Germany in 1973. People feel that this is now kind of a stable country, so the elites need to stop kind of constantly looking out for the population with the, with the Stasi basically observing everyone all the time um, and, and being repressive. And when that doesn't happen, when you get a complete backlash against that, and the, the Stasi actually expands and gets bigger and bigger and bigger, it was set up in 1950 as quite a small organization. 
um, and then ends up basically with over 90,000 employees, full-time employees in 1990, um, well, 1989, sorry. Um, and, and has, of, on top of that, has got these informal um, informants or ordinary citizens who spy on other citizens. Um, you end up basically with a complete uh, monitoring of the population. I, I have one example in the book where Eric Mielke gives a speech and he says, um, there, there are basically six different types of people, so we need to classify people into these categories. Five of them are hostile to the state. You know, and you just wonder what's going on in somebody's mind when you know, that, that just isn't the case. There weren't really any major uprisings between 53 and, and 89. Um, it's, it's compared to you know, the rest of Eastern Europe, it's a fairly stable society. Um, and some of these categories, they didn't even know yet that they were dissidents. You know, it was kind of uh, people who, at the moment, look like they're a proper citizen and, and do their thing, but then they start listening to Western music and they start doing, they, they start buying your jeans, Eric um, Honecker, you know, and he, he kind of immediately assumes that, that those kind of Western influences are the thin end of the wedge and will eventually make people into outright uh, dissidents and that paranoia never goes away and it stays there and people find that increasingly oppressive um, and then go on to the streets eventually when changes are put in the in the rest of um, Eastern Europe as well. I'm aware that I've sort of glossed over the 80s at this point <laughs> um, but I think we're, we're sort of running out of time. I spent a little bit too much time on the on the earlier years but I've, I felt it made sense to set it up uh, properly that way. Maybe we can cover the other bits with the questions. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History. The festival is brought to you by Dublin City Council and organised by Dublin City Libraries in partnership with Dublin City Council Culture Company. For further podcast episodes and for all the latest festival news, be sure to visit dublinfestivalofhistory.ie or follow us on Instagram.